the State Department has been weaponized in the service of the president's political, personal political agenda. Uh, so you can only imagine what kind of impact that would have on the morale of professional foreign service officers. The larger story here is a corruption of the agencies of government to weaponize them and to put them at the political service of the president. That was Tony Blinken speaking on skullduggery more than a year ago amid the battle over impeachment about the impact of President Trump's behavior on morale at the State Department. This week, Blinken was tapped by President-elect Joe Biden as his nominee to become the next Secretary of State in charge of running the State Department. He's just one of five top Biden appointees who have been guests on our podcast. We'll discuss what we learned from them and what that tells us about what kind of approach they'll take in government. And then we'll talk to two political wise men, Andy Card, former George W. Bush chief of staff, and John Podesta, Bill Clinton's former chief of staff, about what both parties can do to get past the Trump era on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So, you know, it didn't take long uh, after uh, listening or reading about Biden's new national security team to go down the list, starting with the guy who'd already been announced, Ron Klain, then Blinken, then Jake Sullivan, then Avril Haines, and then John Kerry, and, you know, voila, what do they all have in common? They've all been guests on Skullduggery, which I thought was kind of cool. And uh, it also is a reminder, you know, we've known many of these characters for quite some time. And, Clyman, you have, in particular, a long, rich history with Tony Blinken. So uh, why don't you tell us about it? Well, first of all, when you get to be as old as we are, yeah. covering uh, Washington yeah. as long as we have, you're eventually going to know people who rise to senior positions in the government. I mean, you realize, <laughs> by the way, every time you say that, you're turning off listen every <laughs> listener we might have below the age of 40. Wait, wait. You don't you think our our younger listeners are ageists? Don't you think they can <laughs> they think they can learn from our from our wisdom? Okay, you All right. Well, yeah, look, first of all, like them. so right. so yeah. just quickly, I mean, Ron Klain, I've known since he was like a 27-year-old aide to Joe Biden on the Senate Judiciary Committee, actually wrote a profile of him sometime back then. It was so long ago that I actually finished that profile on a typewriter. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but Blinken, I've actually known since I was 13 years old. And that was when I was living in Paris with my parents. And Tony grew up in Paris. 
And we also went to the same kind of posh French private school, which I'll get into because it's relevant. But his his upbringing, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of an insight into what his upbringing like, which is almost like an, a laboratory. You know, if we were trying to build the perfect liberal internationalist secretary of state, it would be like his Paris upbringing. You know, it was privileged. He lived in a basically a mansion off of the Avenue Foch, which is like the, the Park Avenue of Paris. I actually lived in his house for a while, like when my parents were traveling. They sent me over to uh, to Tony's house to live there and live there again, I think, uh, over part of a summer. It was a pretty extraordinary household. All right, so, so what do you got on him? That's, that's the question. <laughs> well, okay, well, just a couple of things. First of all, I just want to like for a second here, just bear with me, describe what that household was like. First of all, his stepfather, a guy named Sam Pizar, was a, an international lawyer of great renown who advised American presidents, including JFK, uh, French uh, leaders like Giscard d'Estaing and, and, uh, and Mitterrand. And then his mother was uh, Judith Pizar, who was this kind of grand dame of cultural exchange. So it was really cosmopolitan on any given day. I remember once Arthur Rubinstein, the great Polish classical pianist, was there playing like Chopin on their baby grand uh, piano. There would be artists there, politicians, uh, Hollywood actors. You know, it was, it was pretty amazing. And then there's the school that we went to, which was kind of bilingual, really a French school, but it had a lot of international, a big kind of international student body. And I would say that that, that was his kind of early education in diplomacy and multilateral relationships. Yeah, there were like the, the children of diplomats from all over the world, including like Gaddafi's government and other dictators. And you sort of had to get to know all of these people. And Tony was unbelievably for a kid then 15 years old or so, 15 or 16 years old, unbelievably polished and diplomatic. You know, kids that age generally aren't very much that way. And one thing I will rem I remember was this, I remember it was during like the Camp David peace accords and Tony actually, there was a debate held at the school between Tony Blinken and a guy named Robert Mallet whose father was the published publisher of a left-wing magazine called Afrique Asie that supported Marxist revolutions, you know, in, in Africa and, you know, in other, you know, sort of third world countries. And they debated the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Years later, Rob Malley, who you might remember, was actually worked on the, the Obama National Security Council along with Tony Blinken. But, you know, the thing that I think in some ways was the most important influence uh, on Tony um, in those years was his stepfather, Sam Pizar, this international lawyer that I mentioned. He was a Holocaust survivor. I think, as I recall it, he was one of the youngest survivors of Auschwitz. And Pizar, his kind of article of faith was that you needed to have, like, detente, international trade, commerce between the United States and the Soviet Union to sort of prevent the next Holocaust. And so Tony, from this, you know, very young age, I think had instilled in him the idea that the United States had to be engaged in the world, that you had to actually be practicing diplomacy and commercial relations in order to manage crises so they didn't turn into you know, catastrophes. And I think 
that's the kind of, uh, you know, I think that's basically the kind of Secretary of State he will be, very different from what we've seen in the, in the Trump administration, which has been, you know, America first and, uh, you know, much more isolationist. Now, Tony also, I think, will have a interventionist streak in him. And that, I think, comes from the same place. Because at the end of the day, if you can't prevent huge crises and potentially genocide, you know, using kind of diplomacy, then force is a last resort, which he would be willing to use. Well, that's exactly what happened when he was at the NSC in his first iteration during the Clinton administration when he was in charge of Balkan policy. And of course, President Clinton ordered the bombing of the Serbs in Kosovo as a way to stop what seemed like uh, uh, Serbian atrocities through the region. I actually have my own Tony Blinken story from that era. And that is, uh, if you remember, I was at our office in Newsweek, uh, uh, 17th in Pennsylvania, a block and a half from the White House. And uh, one day I get a phone call from the aforementioned Tony Blinken. I had left my bank card in the bank at the corner of 17th in Pennsylvania, and Tony Blinken retrieved it. And if you think back to this period, this would have been 1999, I was sort of a persona non grata with the Clinton White House. Uh, they blamed me for all the president's troubles uh, regarding Monica. So I thought it was a reasonably classy thing for Tony Blinken <laughs> working at the Clinton White House to retrieve my bank card and, uh, and turn it over. I was thinking uh, a lot of other Clinton aides at the time would have found other uses for my card. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, uh, than Tony did. So I do think, yeah. a class act. On I that think score. classy is a good is a good yeah. uh, word for for Tony, and I think he's a pretty gracious person, and I think you will see that on the world stage as well. Which isn't to say that he, you know, won't be tough, but I think that is his definitely his exterior, very polished. Um, and, you know, he's just a pretty likable guy. Right. And look, going down the list, I mean, Jake Sullivan, we had him on as a spokesperson for the uh, for the Biden campaign just a few months ago. We also had John Kerry on who and I listened to the Kerry episode from uh, earlier this year and was struck just how passionate he was at that point talking about the crisis of uh, climate change, which is what he's going to be in charge of. He's going to be a special presidential envoy for climate change. And we actually have a clip of Kerry on skullduggery talking about it. Um, Mark, you want to play it? It's, it's, it's pretty interesting. We just had the hottest January in human history. We just had the hottest day in that January in human history. And if you look at the entire year, that, that January fit in, you have the hottest year in human history, which is part of the hottest decade in human history, which is, you know, followed by, uh, preceded by the second hottest decade, preceded by the third hottest decade. So, you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist or a nuclear physicist to understand something's happening. Farmers know this all across America. People know it. Ask President Remengensau, who I'm sure most people in America have never heard of, he's the president of Palau, Pacific Islands. 20 years ago was sounding this alarm bell, and today he doesn't have the option of mitigation or adaptation. He's trying to figure out where the people of his nation are going to move to, where are they going to live. This is happening to people all around the world 
now. Well, special points for anybody who might have known who the president of Palau was. But uh, <laughs> one one could hear Kerry's passion in that uh, interview we did with him. And I think that's clearly something yeah. that he's going to bring to the Biden White House. Yeah, it is remarkable. And it, it is interesting that someone who was, you know, the standard bearer for the Democratic Party in 2004 and lost and then was secretary of state under President Obama, still feels a need and a desire uh, to serve at the highest levels of, of government. It will be also interesting to see how things play out within the, the uh, Biden administration, because, you know, Kerry is not just any, you know, no. kind of <laughs> global envoy. And you could see when he was when the national security cabinet was rolled out the other day, when he got up there to make his remarks, he sounded like the president himself. Yeah. Um, so it will be interesting to see how that relationship plays out and whether uh, everyone uh, is able to kind of keep their egos in check. But the passion that you spoke about, you know, makes me think that that uh, maybe he'll be able to you know transcend any of those kinds of questions about vanity. <laughs> Hey, one more, which you have a uh, history with, is Haynes. I mean, you wrote the sort of seminal profile of uh, Avril Haynes um, back when she was named deputy director of the CIA during the Obama years. Uh, why don't you uh, talk well, a little bit about uh, Haynes? Yeah, and, and she's obviously now just been nominated to be uh, the uh, director of national intelligence. So the top intel official in the incoming Biden administration. She will, she'll have 16 different intelligence agencies under her. Let me just very quickly tell you the story of how that profile came about, because it's it's kind of interesting and funny. I was working at Newsweek at the time. This would have been in 2013. Um, it was Newsweek and the Daily Beast. And Obama announced that he was nominating her to be deputy CIA director. And that got my attention because there'd never been a woman who had been held such a high position at the CIA. But I was working on other things, and another uh, reporter in our bureau was doing the story. But he just did a little item. He Googled her name, and what he found, the only thing he found on the internet was that in the 90s, Avril Haines and her husband owned a kind of artsy independent bookstore in um, the Fells Point neighborhood of Baltimore. And on Wednesday nights, they did erotic literary readings. And so he wrote that up. And I thought to myself, well, I mean, you know, she's a pretty interesting person, pretty accomplished career. Kind of funny that that's the only thing we wrote about, but whatever, I'm not going to get involved. Not long after that, I get a call from Kathy Rumler, another former skullduggery guest, who was the White House counsel at the time. And she is ripping into me, having seen that item. And, and she's like, that's the only thing you report on Avril Haines, this woman who is unbelievably accomplished. And of course, she's accusing me of sexism, because that, that was the only thing that we, we said. I, had, I said, I had nothing to do with it. I was like a profile in courage. I blamed the other reporter. And then I said, go talk to Tina Brown, who was the editor of Newsweek at the time. But after that, after that, I thought, OK, well, if this woman is so great, maybe the best way to deal with this 
is to do a profile. So I called Kathy back and I said, all right, well, maybe I should write about her. What's so great about her? And she said, well, just start looking into her career. And I started reporting on it. And lo and behold, it is the most astonishing personal backstory of any national security official I have ever reported on. And let me just very briefly run through this. She grows up on the Upper West Side in this kind of crazy household with her mother, who was an artist, and her father, who's a professor. The house is full of books and paintings everywhere. She eventually goes to, before, I guess she did kind of a gap year, she goes to Japan before college to an elite judo school where she becomes like a brown belt or something. Then she goes off to study physics at the University of Chicago. To make money on the side, she's rebuilding cars because apparently she's a great mechanic, which she learned like on the streets of New York hauling home television sets that people had uh, had thrown out. She gets into a bike at accident. She's hit by a car when she's in, in Chicago and is in the hospital for, like, months. While she's there, she harbors this dream of, like, buying an airplane and flying it to Europe. She goes eventually goes back to the East Coast where she takes uh, flying lessons, falls in love with her flying instructor, and they go and they buy an old Cessna twin-engine plane in Florida. She personally rebuilds the avionics of this plane. They then take the plane to Maine, and then they're going to fly to Europe. They're flying to Europe, and they're flying over the Labrador Sea. Their engine starts to take on ice. That's the first engine. Then the second one starts to falter, and they're going to have to do a crash landing. Miraculously, off the coast of, uh, you know, on the coast of Newfoundland, they find there's a landing strip where they land, and they get taken in by villagers in this remote town in, in Newfoundland. And the story just goes on and on and on from there. And eventually, she buys, uh, she and her husband start this bookstore in Baltimore, and then decides to become a community organizer, and eventually decides, well, kind of Obama-like, well, maybe the way to do this is to be a lawyer if you really want to, you know, improve the lives of people. And eventually she gets into international law, national security law, ends up at the CIA, making calls on on whether, you know, in the middle of the night, whether terrorists should be uh, incinerated with drone strikes. And now she's the top spy in America. I mean, what an improbable story. <laughs> so I, ha I have two takeaways from that. First, all DNI employees, if you're car conks out in the parking lot of DNI, you know who to call um, your new director. And secondly, if that erotic, if those erotica readings had taken place today instead of uh, whenever they was, you know, 15, 20 years ago, there would be video, uh, iPhone video all over social media. And um, they likely, it likely would have been played at her uh, confirmation hearings, I'm thinking. So she could be be grateful that she was doing this in an earlier age. Hey, just uh, two other items I want to mention because we've discussed uh, them both both on this podcast. Uh, first, there are reports that uh, President Trump is getting ready to pardon Mike O'Flynn, his former national security advisor, who twice played.
pled guilty to um, uh, lying to the FBI. Uh, the Bar Justice Department withdrew those charges. Judge Sullivan has been sitting on it, clearly waiting for, I think, a new Biden Justice Department to get into office and then presumably withdraw the withdrawal of the guilty plea of the prosecution of Michael Flynn. That struck me as that was a sort of constitutional train wreck coming because there are all sorts of questions about whether the judge would have the constitutional latitude to pers- to continue with a prosecution. The Justice Department did not want to. So in some ways, if Trump pardons him, he will spare whoever is the new AG for Biden of having to deal with what would be a really messy issue. On the other hand, it will only reinforce all of us who have had suspicions about uh, Trump and uh, his handling of all matters relating to uh, the Russia investigation. And uh, I can't imagine a single solitary reason why Trump would not pardon yeah, of uh, course. Michael Flynn, right? Of I mean, course. you yeah. know. No, he's going to do it. There's no question. Yeah, you know, the only question is, does he do it, you know, this week? Does he wait till Christmas or does he do it on the morning of January 20? But uh, Flynn will be pardoned. The question is, does Paul Manafort, does Roger Stone? Does, Steve, do, Steve does Bannon? George, well, Steve Bannon, that's a separate deal. <laughs> Fraud charges in New York. But um, well, those I'm are thinking federal, of those are all federal... those who have. But those yeah. are, oh, you're talking about anything the Russia, to Russia investigation, because Trump, much like Bill Clinton, pardoned a whole bunch of people who'd been uh, wrapped up in the Whitewater investigation, including his former business partner, Susan McDougal, who and had George, been criminally and, convicted. And George H.W. Bush, people wrapped up in Iran-Contra. Yeah, absolutely. So there's certainly a presidential precedent on that front. Item I just want to mention is last night it was learned that the uh, parents of Seth Rich had reached a settlement with Fox News over the Fox News bogus story, conspiracy story about the death of their son, the former DNC staffer. And what I was able to report uh, last night for Yahoo News is that the parents of Seth Rich got a seven-figure settlement from Fox News, which initiated the negotiations, the settlement talks, when it was clear that some of its top personalities, including Sean Hannity, Newt Gingrich, and Jay Wallace, the president of Fox News, were due to be deposed in a civil deposition in that in the lawsuit brought by parents. So uh, once again, Fox did what it always does when it's faced with the prospect of embarrassing details about its behavior becoming public. It got out the checkbook and wrote a big check to keep things under wraps. So good for the uh, parents of Seth Rich, because they've been through, as anybody who listened to our Conspiracy Land podcast series last year on this, they've been through just hell because of the conspiracy theories that have circulated about the death of their son. But uh, bad news for those of us who are hoping for some accountability about how and why that bogus Fox News story came about. Yeah, I I was going to say this is an important case because it shows that there are consequences for spreading um, these kinds of vile conspiracy theories. But, you know, because your all of your conspiracy land 
series that you've done, you know, one of the big takeaways is that there really aren't consequences for a lot of these characters who, who you know, and purveyors of these conspiracy theories that are so harmful to people because, you know, because of free speech and, you know, what, you know, whatever else. But as you point out, for Fox, it's easy enough to just to write those checks. But at a certain point, you know, maybe there will be kind of critical mass and it will begin to really hurt them. It should. This is something that we're going to be uh, dealing with for a long time uh, to come. And, you know, I think people cannot kind of just act with impunity when it comes to spreading uh, conspiracy theories. It's hugely destructive, not just to our politics and our social fabric, but it's very destructive just to individual people who get caught up in them. And I am led to believe that the riches want to help play a role in uh, pushing some ideas, proposals that can rein in some of these outrageous conspiracy theories that circulate freely on social media, perhaps more accountability for social media companies in allowing this uh, material on their platforms. But that's a subject for another day. Right now, we've got our two wise men guests, uh, Andrew Card and John Podesta, to talk to. So let's get to it. But before we do, we should tell you that after we tape this podcast, President Trump announced that he had, as expected, granted a full pardon for his former national security advisor, Michael Flynn. We are now joined by uh, Andrew Card, former chief of staff to President George W. Bush, now chairman of the National Endowment for Democracy, and John Podesta, former chief of staff to President Bill Clinton and a founder of the Center for American Progress. Uh, The founder. The founder. And and current board member. And current board member. Okay. That's Clydeman is here to correct me on uh, everything I get wrong. <laughs> At um, least where I hang uh, out. All right, gentlemen, welcome to Skullduggery. Glad to be on Skullduggery. I yeah. could be a lot of other places too. <laughs> yeah, good to be with you guys. Um, so you guys uh, joined together to write a piece about the transition and the problems that the delayed transition was having for the incoming Biden administration and the country. But I just want to start out because bipartisanship is so rare these days that it is uh, eyebrow raising when uh, two folks like you can uh, join together. So uh, how did this come about? How did you guys hook up? Uh, David Marchek, who heads a foundation or an, an institute that works to help create a climate for good transitions from one government to another, suggested that we should do it. At least that's how I got involved. And uh, our mutual friend, Josh Bolton and Mac McClarty have been engaged in that. And I was proud to join the effort. And I'm grateful to have a chance to work with John, who I have great respect for. Yeah, the, the project that that Uh, Andy was referring to is a transition project of the Partnership for Public Service, which really is aimed at uh, having good professional public service uh, in the federal government. And they created this transition project, I think, to really support both sides coming into the election to ensure that transitions run smoothly. And we've both participated in some of their programs. So David suggested this to the two of us, and we and it seemed important at the moment uh, because there were comparisons to 
the 2000 election, which was truly a contested election, one that ultimately President Bush did prevail in and won, but it was nothing like what occurred in 2020 when there was a vast spread of votes in uh, states that that President-elect Biden needed to prevail in the Electoral College. No, we were trying to suggest that people that were trying to make comparisons with 2000 and 2020, it was no comparison. Joe Biden was on path to be the president-elect from very early in the evening on election day, actually. And so George W. Bush carried Florida by 537 votes. And it took the Supreme Court to say enough's enough. He gets the Electoral College votes from Florida and he won. So that was not resolved until it went to the Supreme Court. But that was a really close election where it hung in the balance. And even there, we were fortunate to have, I'm speaking now from the George W. Bush side of things, we were allowed to have George W. Bush get CIA briefings from the PDB. We did not start a formal transition process with the GSA ascertaining that we were the winners, but Dick Cheney, the vice presidential candidate and vice president-elect, led the transition team. But we started really way behind from where it could have started this year. And both John and I felt it wasn't 2000. This was really something that was easy to predict that Joe Biden was going to eventually be the president-elect. And because of the pandemic and the stirring problems around the world that they should proceed with the transition, even if some miracle showed up and Donald Trump was able to win some court case and find a path to victory. I don't think he's going to find a path to victory, but we said do the responsible thing and be ready. Make sure that both candidates who are both viable have the capacity to be ready on day one. So I, I guess very briefly, and you lay this out in your op-ed piece, but I think for our listeners, just explain why getting this transition moving quickly is so important. I mean, there are national security implications. There are other implications when an incoming administration can't start the process. It's a very complicated government to run. So just quickly explain what the stakes were here in terms of this transition and, and, and transi transitions going forward? Well, look, we're, we're facing multiple crises, an economic crisis, a healthcare crisis. In President-elect Biden's case, he's focused on the climate crisis. Things need to get moving. We have racial justice issues throughout the course of the year. He laid out aggressive plans to try to restore growth in the economy, to get on top of the virus. I think perhaps most more important than anything in this particular transition was the ability to access the personnel that are planning for the dealing with the long, dark winter we're facing with COVID, but also the, uh, the ideas around how we get these very promising vaccines out distributed in people's arms. You know, it's not, it's not enough just to have a vaccine that's effective that's sitting in a vial where you have to distribute them. And that's a very complicated matter. The current administration is working on that, but the incoming administration really needs to have full insight into that, make any adjustments that they think they, they need to make after January 20th to ensure that the uh, and, and I think that's actually also critical to the economy, that 
if we don't get this virus under control, then the economy is not going to recover. We saw just today, as we're talking, another spike in uh, unemployment numbers that are going back up. The death toll is going back up. We have a you know kind of raging pandemic, and they needed they needed to have access to the people who were worried about that. And the, obviously, there's a lot going on in the international field as well. The Chinese are exercising some muscle, and the Russians are exercising some muscle around the world, the Iranians, the Iraqis. We've got lots of places that are hot spots, including in our own hemisphere. And so and the other thing is, normally you would be able to start the clearance process for people who are likely to take positions in the administration. And that didn't really start until there was some ascertainment. So now they're able to go out, and the FBI can go out and knock on doors and get people security clearances. Thankfully, President-elect Biden has selected on his international team a lot of players who have already been through that process. So they won't, it won't be a difficult challenge for them to get their security clearances, but it still has to be done. But it's really the pandemic is what is on my mind is it would be irresponsible for us to have a incoming president who was ignorant to how the plan to distribute the vaccine was going to be implemented. And I agree there's only one president at a time, but the next president should be able to have enough knowledge to say this will work or this won't work or I want to make some changes because it's so critical. And managing expectations is one of the greatest problems you have as a leader. And not being ignorant and in coming into office with regard to the distribution of vaccines would be irresponsible. And I just think that it means that it wouldn't, it's not the right thing to do. And we're asking President Trump, do the right thing. So since you wrote the piece, the uh, Emily Murphy, the head of GSA, has begun the transition process. So I guess two questions. One is, is that enough? Does that address the main concerns uh, that you were laying out in the piece? And secondly, one of the issues here was, I think the statutory language is when somebody is ascertained to be the winner with no real definition of what that means, uh, what the yardstick for ascertainment is. Does that need to be tightened up for the next presidential election? Does Do we need a better definition of at what point the transition begins. Well, that language came from a 1963 law. So it's it's a pretty stale law. And actually, the 9-11 Commission cited one of the problems of an incoming president maybe not having as much information as they would like to have had, and maybe could have been something could have been done to mitigate or prevent the attacks on 9-11. So they cited that, and we did not get ascertained until after the Supreme Court made their ruling. But we did have the benefit of the fact that George W. Bush was allowed to get PDB briefings. So he it wasn't like he was ignorant to everything that was going on in the world. But that 1963 law, I think, should be changed. I think it should recognize the responsibility of passing a baton, especially given the nature of challenges today. Instantaneous communication, the digital world, has changed everything. So the world knows more about what the challenges are today than some of the people in government. Fake news becomes a reality. How should it be tightened up? What should the definition be of when the trans somebody is the winner and the transition should begin? 
I'm going to give you a long-winded answer to that question, <laughs> which, right. and you know, Andy noted that the current law was passed in 1963 after the Kennedy assassination, and subsequently the transition law, the basic law about transitions, has changed subsequently. The 9/11 Commission, because it noted that there was some delay, the the result of a truly contested election, made provision for the transition really to get started before the election. So I co-chaired and ran the 2008 transition for Obama and Biden. We took advantage of that statute by getting people security clearances before the election so that they could go to work as soon as that ascertainment was made. And in, in that case, it was made the night well, the next morning, I guess, one o'clock in the morning, on November 5th, the GSA head made the ascertainment, and our people were in those intelligence agencies, Defense Department, State Department, the week of the, uh, of the election, because the full weight of the assets that were made, again, these were changes subsequent to 9-11. That wasn't a close election, though. It wasn't, well, this was not a close election. I think it was viewed, I think the reason they gave it to the GSA, because it was viewed as a sort of ministerial act. They right. were turning the key to give you real estate, computer equipment, tell, you know, uh, support on technology, and it releases money to the transition so you can begin to pay with federal resources uh, some of your staff. Today, I think that that, at least by Saturday, it was easy to ascertain that Joe Biden was the president-elect. He had, uh, he had a dominant lead in states that had fully counted their votes and electoral college lead of 306 electors. And the closest state was, I think at that time, Arizona, which was like 11,000 vote lead. No recounts have ever reversed. I think over the course of the last 20 years, the biggest change in votes and a statewide recount has been 2,500 votes. And so he had to win every one of those states, including ones where he was 150,000 votes ahead. You know, I get that, but I haven't heard a, how ascertainment can be more precisely defined. Should it be up to the TV networks? Should it be up to, you know, you guys? Who's going to say, going to decide if there's a close election when the well, transition You should begins? understand, though, but back when President Obama was running for president, so long before Election Day, he actually had a transition team that was getting up to speed. The same thing for John McCain. I mean, it was that was done as a kind of as a courtesy to the candidates running for president so that they could be ready. That wasn't done this year. And I don't know why it wasn't done, but the law permits it. And it certainly was done responsibly 2008. I don't know why it couldn't have been done this year. I think Congress maybe should be right to amend that law and make it more specific and actually acknowledge that people who are running for president from the major parties with any with a viable path to success should be able to start their preparation for a transition even before the election. Biden and Harris did do that, but because of COVID, it was all remote. They weren't in uh, in GSA 
space, which starting in 2016 is made available to people, to the major party candidates running for office. And then that's obviously expanded if you're deemed to be the winner. You know, I don't know that the word needs to be changed. I think what needs to be changed is the attitude that everyone to date has had, probably going back through history, even though there have been some brittle transitions, that when you lose, you concede. That's part of the peaceful transfer of power. That's what builds constitutional democracy. That's what gives faith of the people in the democratic process, that their votes count. And if you win, great. If you lose, you graciously concede. And as Hillary Clinton did in 2016, it wasn't easy, uh, but she did it because Trump had prevailed in the Electoral College, notwithstanding she got three million more votes uh, in the popular vote. But, and that's, you know, that's what John McCain did that's what Al Gore did immediately following, you know, once the Supreme Court decided that the vote count would end and that five, I think it had shrunk to 534 votes by then, but it was, it was sort of where it was on election night. Gore didn't try to fight that. He conceded and moved on. I think what's different is not new interpret, legal interpretation of the word ascertainment. It's the behavior of the president who refuses to accept the results of a democratic election. Well, let me follow up on that, because as you just said, Donald Trump did cross that Rubicon and he has set this precedent. And so I guess beyond the narrow question of ascertainment, do we need other structural reforms? I mean, a more uniform system of election certification uh, by the states where where the people who do the certifying can't come under the pressure of, of the president from their own party or, you know, state legislatures wanting to appoint their own slate of electors, you know, or should a president be allowed to file dozens of baseless lawsuits? Are there other reforms uh, that are necessary or do we just have to hope for future presidents to want to adhere to the norms that we have always adhered to in the past. I guess I'm kind of a 10th Amendment to the Constitution person. I, I like that the states have some meaningful responsibility and uh, that allows them to do things differently. So I favor that which has not been relegated to the federal government can go to the states and they can work it out. And so... As long as we have timelines in the Constitution that says this is the date when the Electoral College must meet by, this is the date when the vote must be taken and the ballots certified in the Senate and opened in the House, and you go through that process and the states all cast their votes, I'm in favor of that. And if it's messy, so be it. But I do think that maybe there should be authority resting I don't know how to do this, but I wonder if they could write, Congress could write some law that would say there is an independent way to, quote, ascertain viability in the race for president. And that once that ascertainment is made, both sides can be equally well informed about how government works. So you don't walk in and think you're a haberdashery salesman and, and that's it. I'd be fine with handing that role to the chief justice. And, you know, because I think they'd call it straight. And I think that what, what happened here 
was, I know that, you know, Emily Murphy was under enormous pressure from the White House. In the end of the day, she, I think, was prepared to do the right thing from the reporting that we've seen. And finally, people prevailed on the president to kind of let it go that way. If we're doing a tour of American history and, and elections and the Electoral College, the other law that we really haven't been talking about is the law that was passed in, I think, in 1878, maybe, uh, after the 1876 contested election, which describes how Congress ought to go about receiving the slates of electors from the state. That law itself is sort of a mess, and it's something that the Congress might want to take a look at so that we don't get into a situation where people have to plot out these crazy strategies like we saw in Michigan, where Joe Biden won and, and Kamala Harris won by 155,000 votes, and we're all applauding because one... <laughs> you know, 40-year-old lawyer, had the Republican lawyer, had the courage to basically say, yes, <laughs> elections count. He won by 155,000 votes, and I'll sign the piece of paper certifying that to that effect. And, yeah. you know, one of, those, one of the other people refused to do that. I mean, it was, yeah. it was sort of amazing. So maybe, maybe we can straighten that statute up a little bit, too. Well, I wanted to just quickly follow up with uh, Andy on that point, and we have other subjects that we want to move on to quickly, but the most Republicans in Washington and, and most Republicans in the Senate and the uh, Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, did not acknowledge what you acknowledged, what you said you knew on the, on the night of the election, which is that Joe Biden won. Slowly, a few Republicans have started to come out to acknowledge it, and some have even congratulated Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris. But why do you think they were so reluctant to do that? And what's your reaction to that reluctance? Well, I, I think incumbents and wannabes are reluctant to cross Donald Trump. It's not a Republican party now. It's a Donald Trump party. And I think they're afraid to get on the wrong side of Donald Trump and his following. So I don't think there's as much of a backbone in many of the Republican leaders as they pretend to have. And they should step up and be realistic and explain the consequence. Most people I know in the Republican Party do really respect the right of the voters to cast a ballot and to have that ballot counted and to respect the result. So even while they may not be speaking up, I think the truth is they celebrate our democracy and they live with the results. Virtually every one of them has had a tough election sometime in their life. And I think they've respected the right of the voters to make their decision. So I don't think that this is as deep-seated as, I don't think it's gonna outlast Donald Trump. I think when Donald Trump is no longer the captain of the ship, and he's probably going to try to stay captain of the, the Republican ship for, for a long time, I, I'm not sure he'll be successful. But I feel bad that the Republican Party has kind of given itself over to a narcissistic leader who doesn't want to share power. And the truth is, democracy is sheer power. I do agree. I, I guess it's John Meacham who has said that disagreement is the oxygen in a democracy. So we certainly shouldn't all think monolithically and all the same, and we should have debates. 
but I don't think that we should be disrespectful to other people debating the other side of the argument. But you still consider yourself a I Republican? I am definitely a Republican. And I, I really respect Joe Biden. I respect the president. I respect the presidency. And I will gladly stand up and say Joe Biden is the president of the United States. And I will do everything I can to help him. I will probably want to disagree with him on a number of policies and speak up. And I'm, yes, I'm a Republican. I'm a conservative Republican. I don't think I'm a right winger. I, I want to say, uh, if I could, one thing about normal. <laughs> as opposed to abnormal. <laughs> I think whether you're a Republican or a Democrat and you're in, a, in high office in the executive branch, you go out of your way to try to help the person who's coming in. I got that when I went into the White House in 1993. After the election was finally settled in 2000, President Bush had lunch for three hours, I think, yeah. Andy, with President Clinton in the White House and tried to share as much as he could from his experience. Simultaneously, I hosted Andy and Josh Bolton in, in my office with Steve Rochetti, who's going into the White House, and Maria Chaveste, who were my uh, deputies. We tried to give Andy as much support as we could. I think that when I was working on the Obama transition, I could not have had more support from President Bush and from his White House team, starting with Josh Bolton on down. Secretary Paulson, we're in the middle of a financial crisis, had an open door for the people who were the landing team that went into the Treasury Department. This is not normal. And so it's a worthy question to say, how do we restore normality? Right, right. And I think that's what Biden is trying to do. That's his task in trying to pull the country together. But you know, his appeal to common American values, to constitutional principle is... I hope people are listening, but this constant reminder of this argument that this was massive fraud in this election creates a constituency for people to not believe in the You radicalize the public, and then you're captive of that. I want to pick up on that, because what is the long-term impact of what Trump has done here and and how worried are both of you that some substantial number of the more than 70 million uh, Americans who voted for Donald Trump are going to believe that Joe Biden did not legitimately win the president that this was a stolen election going into the future. Andy, you go first. Well, I, I do think that this is a challenge, and this is wearing my National Endowment for Democracy hat. Yes, the statements, the motivations generated by the president undermining our democracy or questioning its ability to count votes right or not to have a stolen election and all this kind of stuff, it really hurts, especially when we're trying to demonstrate to other struggling democracies around the world that we're the best form of government. And he may be empowering current democratic leaders to be autocrats and think they can hold on to power for a long time. So yes, I'm troubled by it. I do think that unfortunately, there is an undercurrent of distrust that the president has reinforced and people are feeding on it. I think that he's way overstepped, or he's given permission to people really to overstep responsible behavior when challenging in our democracy. 
I do think that some of the actors who have been overstepping are now losing their credibility and people see that. So maybe more and more people will acknowledge that, no, it wasn't rigged. They didn't steal the election. It wasn't fraud. Were there some challenges? Yes. Have there always been challenges in, in a democracy? Yes, but none enough to undermine it. And we are the gold standard and we want to be the gold standard and we should do everything can to return to the gold standard. I want to believe that it's not a cancer that's going to continue to grow. I hope that it will not metastasize, but it's out there and we have to work really hard. And that's why I'm counting on President Biden to help demonstrate that he is not a partisan president. He got there in a partisan way, but I don't think that he will be a partisan president. Will there be people who challenge him in policies and arguments? Yes. Will he be the leader of the Democratic Party de facto? Yes. But I don't see him as particularly hell-bent on being a pure partisan. Yeah, I, well, I agree with the last comment. I'd say a couple of other words about this. What Trump does and his team does has resulted in, at least a week ago, 70% Republicans think that there was massive fraud in the election. Now, I think that number is going to go down as people see Biden out as they accept the results, even as the people really around Trump, even I think even Jared and Ivanka are telling them, you know, you got to accept reality. So that number will go down, but it's not going to go down. And the more he keeps pumping up the disinformation that is the social media these days, you know, you're left with... It's not 70%, but it's 30%, the base of the party who don't believe any. <laughs> and so I think he's a, he's, he remains kind of a danger to democracy. I think it is this tenuous argument that this was fraudulent, does corrode the public space. And, you know, you know maybe he'll just go to Mar-a-Lago and, and uh, we'll be done with him. But I, I fear that that constant conspiracy angle of his of his Twitter field is going to be around for a while. I agree with that. It is somewhat mitigated in that the truth is Republicans down ballot did surprisingly well in the election. And so if the Democrats were trying to steal the election, they didn't do a very good job of down ballot. <laughs> I agree with that. And, and even in New Hampshire here, and New Hampshire prides itself on a viable working democracy very close to the people. They, the local elected officials, the small cities and towns, they take their responsibility very seriously to count ballots, protect them, to do it the right way. And Chris Sununu got almost 60% of the vote, and the Republicans took control of the New Hampshire State House, the New Hampshire State Senate, and the Governor's Council. So the Republicans did very well in New Hampshire. Donald Trump did not win it. So just picking up on um, Andy, the point that you were making toward the end of your last answer, which is that you think that Joe Biden will not be a particularly partisan president. I mean, the reality is that even before we got to Donald Trump, we were becoming a much, much more partisan country. Our politics have become much more polarized. Congress has been somewhat dysfunctional for a long period of time. And so I guess the question is, what does Joe Biden, what can he do? And this is obviously for both of you, but what can Joe Biden do to get some kind of bipartisan traction 
to break the fever, as Obama was fond of saying. And why should anyone be hopeful or encouraged that that is likely to happen? Andy, why don't you start and then and then John? I don't know if we have a reason to be hopeful, but hope springs eternal for me. I'm, I think we can get there. I hope that President Biden has the courage to step into the arena of the Senate and where he is not only did he serve there a long time, he was actually a, a good student of leadership when he was there, and he was not known as being blindly partisan, and invite them to be part of the solution. Uh, I'm glad that we're going to have, I hope we'll have a, a divided government. I hope the Senate will stay Republican. I think it's good for our democracy. And I don't know if John would agree with me, but it's really tough if you're the president and you control everything and they don't want to do what you want to do. So. <laughs> so I think having a Senate that's Republican and a House that's Democrat is probably meaning that there'll be more effort to find common ground than to uh, stand on the sidelines. John, I'm guessing that I'm guessing that you're actually not hoping for divided government this <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> time around. But let, let me ask you, I mean, uh, assume, assuming that the Republicans do maintain control of the Senate. And, I, you know, I know it's possible the Democrats will win it back if they win those two races in Georgia. But if they don't, then then what does Joe Biden need to do to get a little bit of, of bipartisan traction? What would you advise him to do? Well, first of all, I don't know if Andy would agree with this, but I think this is the revenge of Newt. Newt Gingrich brought this scorch earth politics into the House of Representatives, and then it spread to the Senate. And I say that from the perspective of you know, I spent a lot of time working in the Senate when it was bipartisan, where it was functional, where people did cross the aisle, they found honorable compromise, and things got done. And that's definitely changed the productivity level, particularly where you, I mean, Trump couldn't get anything done when he had both houses, except for the tax cut, which was largely, the, uh, I think, the price the Republicans wanted for having to put up with Trump uh, in the White House. But you asked me what Biden should do. And I don't think you can be naive. Mitch McConnell particularly is a power player. He's not gonna wanna give him wins. But I think he does have to figure out where can I build coalitions where Republicans can come over? My guess is, but when all is said and done, he will find some Republicans to serve in his administration at a senior level. He said he wanted to do that, I believe him, which will help. Uh, I know when I was chief of staff for President Clinton, it was very helpful to have Secretary Cohn at the Defense Department because he maintained contacts with his former colleagues, and that was useful. He got information from that. It was, it was helpful. And we, even during the middle of impeachment, we're actually passing bills, unlike you know today. And so I, I would encourage that. But I think he's just going to have to pick his shots because it's, it's not going to be, it's, we're not going back to the you know, 1970s it's, or the 1980s. There are places in the policy arena where I think he can't keep chasing forever deals, but there are places where I think deals can be done. And uh, whether that's in addressing climate change through green infrastructure or addressing racial justice through criminal justice reform. I think he could find some people in the Senate, Republicans who uh, can, he can honorably work with and try to uh, get results for the American people. 
We've put this in terms of what Biden can do, but it's broader than Biden. John mentioned going back to Newt Gingrich, uh, certainly McConnell, uh, you know, as soon as Obama was elected, made it clear he wanted him to be a one-term president and was going to do everything he could to ensure that happens. Um, From the perspective of Trump supporters, uh, you know, they all remember the chance of not my president right after Trump's victory. And then they perceive the Russia investigation as a as a means to delegitimize his election. I just want to ask, you know, more than Biden, what can you're both, you know, wise men of your respective parties. That um, just means what, we're old. <laughs> exactly. Uh, as are we, by the way. Um, but we're not wise. But, <laughs> but we're not wise. Uh, but what what would you advise your fellow partisans to do to help Biden, if he's really sincere about lowering the temperature? What would you advise them to do to, uh, you know, come come back to a more amicable era in Washington? Andy, let's start with you. And what would you say to Mitch McConnell and Republican senators? Uh, first of all, I think they should talk to each other and and not digitally. I think that they should have face-to-face communications. I think they should do it as a caucus. So Mitch should do it with the other Republicans in the Senate and say, Here we, here's where we are. What do we want to do? How do we want to be engaged with Biden and, and kind of give permission for engagement? I do agree that I hope President Biden will appoint a Republican to the cabinet. I think it's a good thing to do. We, we had Norm Mineta, who was very, very helpful in many, many ways as Secretary of Transportation. So I hope that President Biden picks a Republican in the Senate. I think the, the Republicans probably will be focused on trying to win the House back in the off-year election. I think that's what they'll be focused on. They did much better in the race for Congress this year than anybody predicted, including them. And they have a, a real viable chance to get back the House. So I think that's what they'll focus. I hope that the Senate won't be as focused on that as members of the House will be, because I think the Senate should, the Republicans have a responsibility to help govern in the Senate and the whole world will be watching how do they find a way to help govern. They do not govern by themselves, which means they have to give permission to the president to govern or echo what the president wants to do. And that's going to be a challenge. And so I think it's incumbent on the Republican caucus in the Senate to shut the door. There's some rough feelings there among the caucus members. And I think having a dialogue that is not tweeted out 15 minutes after it happens and is not for social hyperbole, that it's the right thing to do. So speaking with each other, I hope President Biden will go up, invite Mitch McConnell to come down and sit and shut the door and, and talk for an hour about what expectations there are. Look, I, John had to do this as chief of staff. I had to do it. I had to go up to the Hill and spend a lot of time. I remember going into Ted Kenny's office and just sitting with him and said, you want to get this done. We want to get this done, but you don't like us and we don't like you. Can we, can we find, we, we've got common ground here. Can we start working from the common ground out? And he finally said, yes. And we did it on education reform. So there is a way to have those dialogues. 
John, I don't know if you wanted to uh, pick up on that, but I, I've got one other question for you. Uh, well, uh, just briefly, I think I think change will happen actually more from outside in than inside out. That is, Biden has Republicans that he can work with outside of Washington in governor's offices, in the in the private sector, et cetera. And I think these biggest challenges do the COVID stuff right. Get people back out on the street. Get the economy working. And I think if he does that and he works, you know, particularly and shows that he can work with Republican mayors and Republican governors to get the this crisis under control, could get the economy restarted, to put some money into the areas where he thinks things need to get going, you know, that change may seep into Washington more than it'll start in the Congress and then spread out to the rest of the country. At least that's kind of the way I feel about it. I agree with that, John. You should be in helping with that. John, when you came into the Obama administration in, in 2014, you were sort of the architect of Obama's counteroffensive when Mitch McConnell and Congress was really stymieing his efforts uh, to get his agenda passed. And you largely relied on executive action, particularly in the area of climate change, as, as I recall. What did you learn from that experience? Is, is that an approach that you think Joe Biden is going to have to rely on? And what are the, the limits of an, approach, of an approach like that? Well, first of all, you have to be operating under the laws of the United States. I mean, executive authority isn't Again, I don't mean to just not absolutely. Come, I don't. I don't mean to constantly come back to, uh, to the current president. But it's not Article Two doesn't mean you can do anything you want. You have authority under duly passed statutes that the Congress has passed, and you can utilize that authority in the environmental space. It's 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 strong. It's broad in the climate arena in particular. It's really embodied in the Clean Air Act. But there are other statutes as, as well that you could utilize. And I think that it is an effective way to try to move the country in a direction you think is in the interest of the American people. The argument against it, if you will, is the durability. Can it be changed? Can it be reversed? Donald Trump came in and reversed 150 environmental rules that, that Obama or President Bush had put in place over the you know, last 20 years, going back to Clinton. So there's a durability question, but I think in the end of the day, you have to do what you think is right for the American people. And if the statute gives you the authority to do something that you think is necessary to expand healthcare, to deal with the environment, you can't do things that are beyond the bounds of the law, but you should take advantage of the authority you have. The president has a lot of authority. Isn't there also an, another downside, which is that it, it may also increase partisanship? It may lead to a kind of a arms race in terms of unilateralism. Um, you, know, you have to make judgments about that. You know, I think President Obama withheld executive action on immigration for a long time, hoping to get a bipartisan comprehensive immigration bill. And to President Bush's credit, he put a lot of capital into getting a comprehensive bipartisan uh, immigration bill. When finally he was convinced that, I think he even thought he maybe had a deal with John Boehner. But when he was convinced that John Boehner couldn't deliver it to his, from his own caucus, he decided, look, I've got some authority here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to protect 
the dreamers, you know, I'm going to do what I can to create a more humane immigration system, for, particularly for those kids who were brought here and had lived their whole lives in the United States. And now, you know, we're still undocumented. And so, look, you, you got you to make decisions. In his case, I think a lot of people think he waited too long. I think he feels, and he writes about this in his book, that the better, more durable chance was to give it a chance. But, you know, you, those, are, those are judgment calls. Uh, you're, you're not, you're a president, you're not a dictator. And you've got to think through what the long-term consequences of your action are and does it pollute the ability to get other things done. Look, Clinton and Bush were big proponents of moving forward if they thought it was the right thing to do and they had the legal authority to do it. Well, the the problem, of course, is that uh, the legal constitutional authority of the president is ultimately defined by the Supreme Court. And uh, at the moment, your party does not have a majority in the Supreme no, Court. But no, but, you know, so you have to, it, it, it I think that will affect their judgment in certain areas. But I'll, I'll give you a statistic that I just saw in the New York Times. They compiled it for me, which is that both Bush and Obama on regulatory challenges in the courts had a close to 80 percent win rate. Where are you? Trump doing? had a 20 percent win rate. Hmm. So, uh, so, you know, it's a bit surprising. You're right. You know, yeah. uh, <laughs> If you pay no attention to what, to what you know due process means, then you probably don't win a lot of cases in the court. And this is a more conservative court. It'll restrain, I think, their some to some extent their field of action, but they could still get a lot done. Yeah, Andy, you were going to say yeah, policy is the easiest thing to make up. And so at the White House, I tried to have discipline around the policy. So when people would come in, I've, we got to do this. I would say, what's the underlying principle that it fits within? You know, how does this, how are we going to describe it? Tell me the people who are going to be impacted by it, how we're going to make a difference to their lives. Tell me the partners that won't be impacted by it, by rec but recognizes the right thing to do. Tell me what the process you had coming up with the policy and what is the process of implementing it? And what is the process of understanding whether or not it worked? And then was this a presidential decision or was it just a government decision? Because I'm not going to waste the president's time with just a government decision. Somebody else could make the decision. I think if you have that discipline and you include that around the debate over an executive action versus a legislative action, you are somewhat protected. Executive action should not be done on an impulse. Uh, Donald Trump's very first executive action was to say, if, you're, if you've got a green card, you can't come back home, you know, that type of thing. Immigrants can't come in. It was a disaster in, it was not a disaster in what the president wanted to do. It was a disaster in nobody telling him how hard it would be to do it, what the consequences would be. And you probably don't want to do it that way. Well, I, I was going to say, I don't think that your approach would have ever <laughs> made it in the Trump White House. But anyway, well, listen, uh, this has been a great discussion. I want to thank you both, Andy Card and John Podesta. And um, hopefully some people will uh, be listening to what you have to say and uh, take some of your advice. So thanks for joining us. Have a great Thanksgiving, guys.